So we're going to read from Job 2 and whatever the other passage was that is written down. Uh, Two passages, one from the beginning and one near the end. And um, this will give you a small taste of what's in the book of Job, and I will give you a whole bunch of other passages as we unpack this. The uh, best way, of course, to do Job is to actually sit in it and read the whole thing and allow it. Um, It's long on purpose would be my summary of it. It's long on purpose. You're supposed to sit in some of these things a lot longer than the few verses I will share with you. But for this context, this is how we will do that. Hear the word of God from Job chapter 2. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, heard about all the troubles he had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. Then moving on. To, nope, apparently I'm not reading another passage. I'm going to, I'll find it. Job 40. The beginning of Job 40, this is when God talks right at the end of the book. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Prepare to defend yourself. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all together in the dust. Shroud their face in the grave. And then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. This is the word of the Lord. So in anticipation of the fact that I might actually make it through this sermon without being emotional, but I was emotional about biblical interpretation, it's complicated. Sitting and suffering with Job. Part of my job, I've often said, is to help people cry. 
I usually don't bring that out in a one-on-one conversation. It doesn't go over that well. It's easier to say in a broader context like this. But our job as church is to help us all do all the stuff we need to do. We live in a world that has not much interest in suffering. And so every once in a while, at least, we need to pause and lament. That's our word. To cry. That's a more common word. And to feel the stuff that we need to feel. And sitting in it for one service in 20 minutes isn't quite enough. Next week, we're going to do World Hunger Sunday. No, Persecuted Church Sunday with a World Hunger Offering. And then we're also going to have a Disabilities Concern Sunday. And so this season, if you will, is going to be a time where we pay attention to the fact that there's some things that are broken around us that we need to pay attention to. So last week we asked the question and thought about how do we interpret the Bible and how do we interpret Job? And this week we're going to get to the point of Job. We're going to use that interpretation to talk about all the questions raised by suffering. And to do that, I want to start by giving you sort of the summary of what Job is actually about, right? The product of all that interpretive stuff that I did and shared some of with you. So there's lots of different kinds of suffering, right? Some suffering you bring upon yourself, right? If I go outside on a hot, sunny day and I don't wear sunscreen and I come back burnt, you say, you know, you should have worn a hat or put on some sunscreen, right? If I go out on a really cold day and I get frostbite because I didn't have any gloves, you say, you probably should have worn some gloves. Maybe you say it nicer than that, but you do say that. That was the kind of suffering we bring upon ourselves. Job is a book with a strange setup at the beginning because it wants us to understand that the conversation here isn't about all kinds of suffering. It's about that suffering that we can't explain. So it sort of sets it up, what if God just simply let someone experience suffering for no reason at all? Because that seems to be how Job starts, and so that's the kind of suffering we're talking about. You know, because most of us already recognize, I hope, that we can't explain all suffering equally. We can't put it all together and make it orderly and structured. That's the point of Job. But it also gives us time to sit in that reality that sometimes it's very clear that injustice has happened, that something's not fair, that people are suffering needlessly and horribly, and we have to wonder, how do we respond? How do we deal with that? I was thinking about this, as I was thinking about this this week, and recognizing that this week's offering is for Calvin Seminary, where I was trained, I was thinking how often in seminary we actually sat in this conversation around suffering, mainly because it's one of the hardest things to answer theologically. It's the hardest thing for us to answer as church, because everyone's favorite question is, how can you believe in a God with all the suffering that takes place in the world? And we say, that's a really good question. And we say, Pastor, answer that one for us. Go talk to my pastor. That's our favorite answer to that question. So I'm going to give you seven um, different ways to respond to suffering. First one is to bail on God and religion and faith. And all kinds of people use this answer. I'm not suggesting this. I'm just telling you it's one of the ways people respond. Job's wife says to him, once he's lost, they've lost everything. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. This whole thing doesn't make sense. Just walk away from it. There's no explanation 
too bad. But recognize, briefly anyways, that if this is your answer, you need more of an answer, right? The great philosopher Nietzsche, not great positive philosopher, but great philosopher nonetheless, basically concluded that if there is no God and no purpose and no meaning, then offing yourself is probably the best plan for life. That's the best logic you can come up with. There must be, we want to say, something bigger and something more. Second response, sit in silence. Job's three friends come, and they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now, you know me well enough, you know that's about as slow as I can talk. That was less than 30 seconds. Seven days, seven nights, not a word, sitting in sackcloth and ashes and all the description of how he sat. This is the best thing I think Job's friends did. We're going to learn about some of their words later and how they kind of threw things off. You've probably heard me say one of my favorite quotes, Mark Twain, it's better to sit silently and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. When it comes to people in suffering, I highly recommend that truth. Right? People do reasonably regularly come to me in situations of suffering, and they do actually often ask me why. And I've learned not only is it okay and right for me be, to be able to say, I don't know, because I don't. But I also have to say that properly, right? Because I think, you know, life isn't just about whether or not what you're saying is true. It's about whether or not you're saying the truth in love, in a thoughtful way, in a helpful way. And so I can't just say, well, I've dealt with this before, and the answer is I don't know, and there you go, take that piece of information and walk away. No, it's I don't know, and I want to sit in the fact that I don't know with you and feel with you how disconcerting that is, that I can't tie this in a bow for you and make it all make sense so that you can walk away with it all answered and in peace. Third response. Question the meaning of life. This is Job. Um, one of the things we need to know about the book of Job is that um, it's one of the books of the Bible where you shouldn't just quote all of it whenever you want to. Because um, some of the things that are said by the friends who are often wrong are actually very good statements. They're quotable. Sometimes when Job says things, though he is said by God at the end, he didn't sin in all that he said, they're not that helpful to quote, right? So again, be careful with this book. Be careful when you're dealing with suffering. Um, I won't say that complicated word again, but it's complicated. So Job questions the meaning of life. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? So when you're living well, as many of us are, and you have many blessings and your families around you and things are, are running along smoothly, right? Then life makes sense. You probably don't even ask the question, which is why we're pausing to do this now. You probably don't always ask the question, what about suffering? How do we deal with that? But when we're in the midst of it, 
when you have a long-term struggle in your life, when you have a lot of pain in your life, when you have deep grief in your life, you wonder, why am I on this long journey? And I want to suggest to you that this question is good. This is a lament question that, as Leah wonderfully taught us in the video, wasn't it wonderful, by the way, to take a very difficult subject and have a little bit of humor in it with the kids showing up and so on? That's actually how we get through some of these things, right? It's actually okay, not a little sidebar here, it's actually okay in the midst of your grief to also have some laughter to break that tension along the way. But this lamenting thing, right, is about crying out. It's actually putting it all on the table. It's about being honest with God. In fact, if there is an answer to the how do I get through suffering, it's by continually expressing that grief. That's why we have grief share at this church. Share your grief, right? Brilliant title. Keep sharing your story. Keep talking these things through. And I know many of us were, were, were trained, I was trained, that when you're feeling pain, that's something you keep to yourself and you don't put it on the table and you don't annoy people by bringing it up again and again. But as Christ followers in this community, our job is actually to regularly be a place where people can, until they're done, which they probably never are, share the grief and share exactly what's going on authentically in their life. Third one was question the meaning of life. Third, explain why it is just. This is Job's friends. Chapter 4, verse 7. Consider now, says Bildad, I believe, who being innocent has ever perished, and where were the upright ever destroyed? So, Bildad's comments to Job, and spoiler alert, they're wrong, is this. God is just, therefore, you must have done something wrong. And this whole book, every time, after a while, when Job starts speaking, he starts out with, how long are you guys going to keep repeating the same thing over and over again? And I think that's in this story because we want this to work. And this was the best wisdom of, of, of Job's day as well, is God is just, and therefore, if something went wrong, it's punishment for something you did. You just got to figure out what you did wrong. And that works nice and neat and tidy, but it's incredibly emotionally damaging, by the way, right? That's why this is dangerous. Because we want the world to make sense. We want the question why to be answered with because, and in this case, why? Because God is just and therefore you did something wrong. If that is your answer to people, it leaves them with an ongoing sense of guilt for everything broken that's happened in their lives. I've heard way too many people use this, which means we've been teaching this, folks officially or unofficially, we've been teaching people that the reason they're going through suffering is because they did something wrong or they must have done something wrong, even if they don't know what it is. Please do not quote this part of Job to people. It damages them. Five, we despair of explaining. And this makes lots of sense. I totally get this because I've tried to understand and explain and work this through. It's all the same. That's why I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. This is the is what it is explanation, right? That's a great saying nowadays, right? It is what it is, man, which is basically saying nothing. It's just saying words. It's like, ah, right? It is what it is is sort of saying that the reality that we're living is the reality that we're living in. And yes, it is. Thank you for your help, right? Those are just ways of walking through something without really understanding it. And that's okay. But after a while, we might join Job in despairing of all this and going, well, all we know is 
Our fate is whether you're good or wicked, you live and you die. This is the whole philosophy of life, right? And again, let's nuance this. It's okay to express this, because that's sometimes what it feels like, right? If you're in this spot, say it out loud, that's lament. But if we just stay at this point, if we're stuck in this philosophy, if we explain all of life according to, well, good people and bad people live, and good people and bad people die, and that's just the way life is, we're missing the opportunity to understand meaning and connection. The book of Job is there to draw us into the reality that it actually makes a difference when you're suffering to have a God on the throne, as opposed to, well, life happens and then you die, right? There's a deeper hope and we're moving towards it. And then see suffering as a warning. So Job has three friends that we all know about. And then his fourth friend comes at the end after the other three have said again and again and again, you must have sinned because God is just, so repent. Just repent in general. If you can't think of it, repent somehow, and maybe God will forgive you and heal you. And the fourth friend says, no, maybe you didn't. Maybe you're right. Maybe you didn't do anything wrong, which the book says he didn't. Maybe God's just warning you. This is a just-in-case, right? This is the parent punishing the child just in case they might do something wrong later. I'm not sure that's great parenting, right? But that's this one's response. When you see this suffering, it at least warns you you shouldn't do those kinds of things, right? He says, God may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, right? He's trying to humble them so that they'll stay on the straight and narrow. And the seventh answer to suffering is God's answer. And there's three of them, sorry. I said there were seven, but there's actually then nine. God's answer starts with this. How does the world work? You ever notice how often God and Jesus as God answers our questions with questions, right? That's what he's doing here too. How does the world work? Where were you, he says to Job, when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. This, by the way, does give us an insight into how to understand the story of creation in the Bible as well. Where was Moses when the world was created? He wasn't there taking notes, right? He was received this story from God as an explanation, as a showing of who um, God is and how God worked. We can't fathom how this world works, right? If you know anything about galaxies and stars and light years and all that kind of stuff, and I know very little, and black holes, right? anytime I read even just a little bit, because that's all I've ever read about those things, it's mind-boggling. Right? This expanding universe that God somehow set in motion in a way that we can't even come close to understanding, right, tells us that we live in a world that we don't understand, right? And I know that's a really hard truth for us because there's this sneaking suspicion that when you follow Jesus and you have the Bible and you understand it with the proper theology, which is, of course, our theology, right, then we have the answers, but the answer to the Bible is actually, first thing you need to know is we don't actually have all the answers, right? Job's actually likely the very first book written, right? Followed by the second book, which would be Genesis. And both of them gives a really clear picture. We don't actually know how this whole thing works. We are called to trust, all right? That's his first part of his answer. How does the world work? If you can answer that, then you've got it. Second one is unruly creativity. Look at Behemoth, and can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook? I find this incredibly fascinating. 
one. Does anyone know what Behemoth and Leviathan are today if you live just north of Toronto or you happen to be just north of Toronto? Roller coasters at Canada's Wonderland. See, the world hasn't completely given up on the Bible. They're really using those cool names. And Leviathan, anyways, in my opinion, is a great name for a roller coaster because when I think of Leviathan according to how I've been taught about it, it's a lot like Loch Ness Monster, right? It's a mythical creature that would go but like this, right? So if that helps you, that helps you. Behemoth, if you need an image, I think a um, woolly mammoth would probably be a pretty good estimation. But here's my question. This is God speaking, by the way, talking to Job, telling him to look at these two mythical creatures. I think that's fascinating. God who created all the amazing things, including the duck-billed platypus, picks mythical creatures to make his point. And I think what he's trying to say is, not only am I so creative that you can't understand how the entire world was created, I love to even keep being ongoingly creative, and I'm going to pull in these interesting things like Leviathan and Behemoth, animals which were well-known in, in the mythical reality as being out-of-control wild animals, right? Loch Ness Monster, right? What does that con conjure up? It means you seldom see it, it's crazy, it's scary, it's all those kinds of things. And God's saying, my world is so creative and unruly that the idea of you wanting to package it and tame it so that you can explain it and control it doesn't fit at all with who I am and how I function. I'm the God of Leviathan and Behemoth and this unruly creativity that's part of the world. Third answer, you try balancing justice. God says, then adorn yourself with glory, Job, and with splendor. So first, you make yourself the person of power in the story, and then look at all who are proud and bring them low. In other words, I'm just quoting a small piece. He's basically saying, you work out justice, right? Because you know how this goes. We, we have this going on in our world right now. Israel and Palestine. Somehow we've decided that when you do a news clip on the radio, you have to decide which politicians are on which side, and that sort of settles it. Anyway, do we not all understand that there's really good human loving people in Palestine and really good loving people in Israel, and that there's thousands of years of conflict, religious and political and just human and relational, Right? And so picking a side is not a solution. Right? Let's narrow that down. In your family, there's a couple of people who've had an argument once only, I'm sure, right? And then you're called in to say, well, can you, can you put this back together again for me? And you realize that person's got a good point. Never listen to just one person at a time, by the way, that you'll really get thrown off. This person makes a good point, and you go back to the other person, you know, they sit, and then they make their point, and you go, oh man, yeah. Yeah, you were also hurt. And how our world often works is, well, you hurt me, so I get to hurt you, that's justice, right? But then now you've hurt me, so I get to hurt you, and then you, you know, it goes on. I hate to be really simplistic, but that's the explanation of most wars. Well, they hurt me first, so I get to retaliate. That's how we respond. And so God says, if you can take all of those things in this world and make them work out perfectly balanced so that everybody's happy with that piece of justice, have at it. Go ahead, Job. 
Because that's what you're asking me to do. Do you remember the movie from a long, long time ago, A Few Good Men, with that guy in it? Jack Nicholson, thank you. I had it earlier. And you know his line, obviously, too. You can't handle the truth. He's on trial, and he's been doing some rotten things, and he doesn't want to have to explain it, right? And I sort of feel like God's saying, he's not Jack Nicholson. Let's not connect the two, right? Keep that really far apart. But God's going, you can't handle the truth of how this works, right? And so he's asking us to trust, to trust. So I'm going to use the word again, complicated. Complicated calls for trust. If we are followers of God, the basic posture is reverence, is kneeling, is lying prostrate before God. It's prayer, it's submission, it's trusting. And the reason we need to trust is because the whole justice system of the world and why they're suffering and how that works out is beyond us. And you can take fatalism and say, well, that's just the way it is, or you can just throw out religion and belief and philosophy and say, well, there's no explanation for this. Or you can say, this God and this world is bigger and beyond me, and I bow to it. I put myself in God's hands, and I allow him to carry me and I trust. So this is what I believe happens when people come to me and they say, why, Pastor Eric, did this happen? Why am I going through this suffering? That is an incredible act of trust, right? And it's not a trust in me because I quickly prove that I can't help them. It's a trust in God. It's saying, Pastor, as my spiritual leader, I want you to help me connect with God. And then we start on this journey of trust. Trusting God with our story, trusting God as we cry out, trusting God as as we lament, trusting God with our honesty in ourselves. And it works. And it works. Doesn't work simply, doesn't tend to work logically, right? But it works spiritually because that little piece of dependence that we must go through to get through difficult, unexplained suffering in our lives is what faith is all about. Job says, I know that you can do all things, God. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Now, that's not the end of suffering. There's good news. Because if you just walk away from here going, oh, we don't know why, that's not enough. The good news is God may not explain our suffering to us. He calls us to trust him in that. He does enter our world and meet us in our pain. That's what I think happens when we visit each other and connect with each other and listen to each other's stories, where we do grief sharing, whether formally or casually and relationally. But of course, all of that depends upon the fact that God actually came into this world as Jesus Christ and hung out where? With the lepers, a horribly unexplained thing that back in the day they would say, back in that day they would say, well, yeah, you must have sinned, that's why you got leprosy, right? They would use Job's friend's answer for that, and Jesus said, no, 
you're here so I can heal you. The man born blind, they actually asked Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents, that this man was born blind? And Jesus says, no, this is here so that you can see my glory. And that's the crazy thing of faith that we get to do, is to trust that as Jesus followers, people who are following Jesus, who actually absorbed and took and, and walked into and felt all the pain that we felt, feel, and went to the cross and rose again in new life, in new healed life, when we follow him into suffering, what we're saying is, as we walk straight into that pain, as we express it to God, he meets us there, and that meeting actually brings healing. So I'm going to tell you another thing that I don't often say out loud, because it doesn't often help. When someone comes to me with suffering, and ask me the why question. Once I calm down my panic, because I still panic, because I still don't know what the answer is, and I was trained to know answers, the next thing I do is I get a little bit excited. Honestly, I get a little bit excited, because I know that if you trust God with your suffering and your pain and the brokenness in your world, enough to verbalize it to me, then God's going to do some healing. I don't know when or how, and I wish you'd do it faster a lot of times. I've walked with some people for way too long in some of this stuff. But God is already working on healing that the minute you sacrifice yourself, humble yourself, drop your pride, and ask God to meet you in that moment. It's tough, sometimes it's long, but it's very true and very real. And I want to end with this, the personal part for me. I've told you probably many times already, my dad died when I was nine. I still don't have an answer to why. I know some of us think that when we get to heaven, that's when God gives us all the answers. He opens the box and tells us all the answers. I've come to the place where I think this is what's going to happen. I'm going to get to heaven, and God's going to go, do you want to know? And I'll go, who cares? I'm with you. And so is he. That's the answer, right? So on that journey, without having the answer, I am also incredibly clear in my mind that the reason I do what I do, believe what I believe, and live how I live is also because my dad died when I was young. Truth be told, I'll take my dad back any day, no problem. I'll give up all the rest for that. But since this is the way it went, that's my little bit of understanding. It's not logic, it doesn't explain why, it doesn't put it in a nice package, but it's hope and it's trust. And that's what he calls us to. That's who God is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for meeting us here. Thank you for meeting us here in our world. Thank you for walking into our suffering and talking particularly and often to people who were struggling in all kinds of ways. And thank you for meeting us by taking that struggling and suffering yourself. And thank you that as we go on this journey with you, we can hold on to hope and trust that even though we don't understand it, there's a big picture of what's going on here, and that picture's in your hand. It's your drawing, it's your creativity, it's your world. Lord God, we put ourselves and our pain in your hand. In your name we pray, amen.